Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Darts and Letters. I'm Jay. I'm one of the producers. This episode is one of the times Darts focuses on just one person. And that's because Gordon interviewed David Sirota, one of the writers of Don't Look Up. You know, the film on Netflix that everyone was talking about around the new year with the comet that's going to crash into Earth. And even if you weren't a fan of that film, I think this is really worth a listen. Because David Sirota is more than just that film. He's a journalist who doesn't limit himself to just doing journalism. He's a storyteller who embraces long-form narratives and fiction as a way to get his message across. He has written for The Guardian and Jacobin. He founded The Lever. But he was also a speechwriter for Bernie Sanders, and he's recently released an investigative podcast into the 2008 financial crisis called Meltdown. I think that clearly makes him a left opinion maker. And that's our theme for the week, left opinion makers. We're relaunching the show on September 18th, but until then, we're playing our favorites from our catalog with a different theme each week. So Gordon does ask David Sirota about Don't Look Up and about the criticism the film received too, but they also talk about storytelling and American politics more broadly. This is a little less of a single focus than our usual stuff, but we felt David merited it. And just a reminder, if you like what we're doing here on the New Books Network, go subscribe to Darts and Letters on Spotify or Apple or whatever app you do use. It costs nothing and it's the easiest way to make sure the show keeps going. From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. Today we have a very special guest, David Sirota. You probably know him as co-writer of the Academy Award-nominated film Don't Look Up. What you might not know is that he was also co-writer and host of an Audible podcast series. It's called Meltdown. That came out in October of last year, and if you haven't heard it, I highly recommend you check it out. The podcast traces a direct line between the 2008 financial crisis and the right-wing populist backlash of Donald Trump and his friends. But David is also a kind of meat-and-potatoes daily political reporter, and quite a good one. He's actually an award-winning investigative journalist, and now he's editor-in-chief of the online news magazine The Lever. That was formerly called The Daily Poster. Before that, he was a former Bernie speechwriter. So basically, David is a lefty journalist. He's not too bothered by stodgy understandings of objectivity. He is more about moral and political clarity. Now, that's not too unusual, at least not for this show. We've had lots of people like that on Darts and Letters. But what is unusual about David is just how wildly popular he's become doing his work. And it's in large part because of this jump into long-form narrative. And by that, I mean meltdown and don't look up. So I wanted to learn more about his process, about bringing his political ideas into these new mediums and these new forms of storytelling. And these stories also have some very dartsy stuff. And by that, I mean they are about the politics of knowledge and expertise. They're stories about what we know, how we know it, and why we often just ignore it, why we don't look up. 
Meltdown has some similar themes, but a little different. It's more a story of the myopia of technocrats. This is the story of Obama-era reformers who decided to basically accommodate Wall Street after 2008. To them, their little tweaks seemed like the wise and responsible things to do. But in reality, they weren't nearly enough. And at the end of the day, they couldn't have been dumber because they totally misunderstood the politics of the moment. And now we are living with the consequences of their decisions. So today on Darts and Letters, David Sirota. But first, a quick message. You're listening to Darts and Letters, a show about the politics of academia, ideas, and intellectual life. We're proud to be a new member of the New Books Network. And all this summer, we're playing some highlights from our archives. But like Jay said, we are coming back with regular weekly programming this September. So if you like what you hear and you want to hear that, why don't you subscribe to our podcast? Search Darts and Letters wherever you find your podcasts or go to dartsandletters.ca. Well, David Sirota, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to uh, to speak with you. I've been following uh, your work for a little while now, and I guess I was uh, I was a little surprised and also delighted uh, to see the shift for you going into long form documentary radio with Meltdown, and obviously with um, what people would probably be even more familiar with, Don't Look Up, which was which was hugely successful. I wanted to kind of open there by just talking about that shift if if you do see it as a shift i mean it seems like in these domains the kind of politics that you have the kind of left populist you know clear moral indignation and and political clarity is often often missing often not that common so i'm wondering why why the shift into these sorts of mediums for you and and what what was that like for you well i think that story is a big part of this i mean humans have learned over thousands of years to respond to storytelling and obviously don't look up as one allegory it's a metaphor it's a story uh and so a lot of the work that i do is reporting and those are stories too but they're not necessarily narrative dramatic stories they're recitations of facts that have been uncovered so i really wanted to i really enjoyed getting into how to take something important and turn it into uh, a story that millions and millions of people could connect to. And I think obviously it, it, the success of the, of the project, the amount of interest that it generated proved the success, I think, of storytelling and, and hopefully good storytelling. I think our movie was good storytelling, or I'd like to believe it, it, it is. I mean, you know, it's generated a, quite a reaction some people love it. Some people hate it. You know, some people have asked me, well, well, is this a deviation from your work as a journalist? And 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 my work in politics and in journalism uh, and now uh, in this with this film, I mean, I, I, I don't see it as a deviation. I see it as all one one trajectory, one set of 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 work projects that are designed to question the status quo, uh, question the. Um, powerful forces that I think have created the the problems in our world. I want to ask you a little bit about Don't Look Up. I'm sure many listeners have already seen the film. It was enormously popular. 
from my point of view and from the point of view, I guess, of the show, being very interested in the politics of science and expertise, I am especially interested to ask you about Dr. Randall Mindy, who was a fascinating character that seemed to really really kind of resonate with a lot of the kind of the way that I see experts sometimes. I mean, they, first he can't communicate. He's kind of anxious, you know. He doesn't really speak with the same moral and political clarity as uh, as Kate does. And then very interesting arc, right, where he get, becomes sort of seduced by both the media attention and becoming a kind of house expert for the government before he finally does kind of get religion and, and realize that, you know, he needs to to get serious about this. But can you tell me a little bit about kind of his arc and how you went about creating this character? Sure. I mean, I think that that Dr. Mindy and Kate DiBiaschi are two parts of the rational human brain. Kate DiBiaschi saw the comet and said this is an existential crisis, and I am honest with myself. I don't really trust that the government's going to be able to do anything about it, and I'm going to try to do what I can to grab the government by the lapels and, and do something. And But I'm ultimately not going to be surprised when the government doesn't do what it needs to do. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a darkness to that. Dr. Mindy also understands the the crisis, but is trying to play a role as um, he's trying to stay positive and say, you know, I have to do what I can to take this imperfect system and make it respond. And it's not that he's naive, but he obviously gets sucked in. I mean, he gets um, mesmerized and enchanted and by the fame of that system. And ultimately he ends up where Kate ends up. I mean, he ends up making a, a good go of it and he ends up, feeling as helpless as she seemed to feel from the beginning. Uh, and I think that those two responses are, are rational. They're understandable. They're two parts of the human brain, a normal human brain that probably looks at climate change and says part of it's like, I should just throw up our hands and we can't do anything. And then the other part says, well, we got to do what we can to work with a completely corrupt government and a dysfunctional political system to try to get something something done because every single thing is on the line. And I, I, I think the dichotomy between them is entirely human and normal. And, and I also think him getting sucked into that system of fame and celebrity is also understandable. And I mean, he ultimately ends up seeing it for what it is. But I think part of the movie is about showing how uh, pernicious that system is. And I think you see that through the experience of Dr. Mindy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and it's an allegory, obviously. So this isn't sort of a one-to-one thing. We can't map every event of your movie onto the world in which we live. But I'm still curious to ask you if you had kind of comparables in mind when you were crafting um, Dr. Mindy. Are there are there scientists that you've seen follow similar trajectories or, or maybe even just get stuck in that, in that earlier phase of being sort of seduced by being the famous uh, house expert? I don't know if I would say that there's a scientist, but I, I know that I know there are people in politics mm-hmm. who it's not exactly selling out, but who can get compromised and who can lose their sense of what it's all about by being at a higher and higher level of prestige and stature. It's not a, a particularly pleasant thing to watch. But the point is, is that I, I don't think it's just scientists. I think it's the way the political and media system works, that there's 
more access and benefits and stature and riches if you go along to get along. And I think the other part about this is, is that the going along to get along does is designed to not make you feel like you're corrupt or selling out or anything like that, that the system is so pernicious that it convinces you you're doing the right thing by doing mm-hmm. that, that Randall Mindy is convinced that he's doing the right thing for much of the movie by working with the president rather than going outside of the system and sounding the alarm on the dysfunctional White House. He's convinced he's doing the right thing. He's not doing it saying, I'm, you know, I'm selling out. Uh, you know, he really thinks morally he's doing the right thing. And and in some senses, maybe he is. Because you you have to try to work with in a situation in a crisis, you got to try to work with everybody to get to to a solution. But he has his kind of um, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it any more moment. Is that something that you you feel like you know we're at a state now where the kind of respectable experts <laughs> should basically sound like that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of amazing that we haven't seen more folks yet behave like that. Yeah, it really raises the question of where is the breaking point? I mean, and whether it's climate or whether it's the pandemic or whether it's just a completely corrupt government, the political system in the United States is still such that that whistleblowers are a very, very, very rare thing. People speaking out, people near power speaking out is, is such a rare thing. In some senses, that's strange considering the intensity of the crises we face. A generation ago or two generations ago, you saw people like Daniel Ellsberg, who was inside the halls of power, who sounded a huge alarm about the about the Vietnam War. And once in a while, you'll get a whistleblower like that now. But considering the the intensity of the crises we face, I, I th- it's somewhat surprising we haven't seen more. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know I saw the EPA administrator um, or the uh, in, sorry, the White House uh, environmental advisor is leaving her job. And at one level, I was I was looking forward to seeing her speak out about the fact that, you know, Joe Biden has increased fossil fuel drilling on federal lands to levels that even are beyond what Trump was doing. And maybe she was going to speak out and kind of try to sound an alarm about this, but that hasn't happened. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I, I just I'm sort of surprised in some ways I'm sort of surprised that they're just we haven't reached that tipping point yet where there's been a critical mass of people willing to kind of break the norms and speak out. Yeah, I I share that surprise. I feel that if I were devoting my entire life to, you know, a green energy transition or something, I was a climate sort of policy person, and you keep saying, okay, this is what we need to do, this is what we need to do, this is what we need to do, and no matter how many times you say it, you get ignored, I feel like I would just kind of lose my mind. Like, I, it seems like almost the rational thing to do is just to start screaming, but it doesn't happen enough, uh, or at all, really. I'm curious about the reaction. I mean, I watched the movie, I liked the movie, I, I wasn't following all the, you know, everything that was said on Twitter, but my kind of ambient sense of things is, it was one of the most popular movies on Netflix ever, if not the climate activists and scientists seemed to like it. And uh, some critics did, but a lot didn't. Can you tell me a little bit about the reaction and, and kind of what you you made of it? We knew this was going to be a 
divisive movie or, or as we called it, not a consensus movie. You typically can't make movies about the here and now, about a political issue, and not have lots of people have lots of different opinions about the content. You can make movies about history. You can make movies about fantastical worlds that don't exist. But if you make a movie about the here and now, everybody's going to have their opinion. So in, in, a, in a sense, the opinions being all over the place were not only not surprising, I, I would be worried had that not been the case. In fact, I would have been worried that the movie did not land mm-hmm. if lots of people didn't have lots of opinions. I would have been worried. I guess nobody's watching our movie. Look, I, let me just say first, if you don't like our movie, that's totally fine. People are going to have their their opinions. You know, beauty or, or skill is in the eye of the beholder. You can be a devoted climate activist, believe in climate change, and hate our movie. But I will say that I think there was some criticism that wasn't really about the movie and was reading into the movie in a way that I didn't think was all that fair. I mean, there was some criticism that the movie was quote unquote smug. It's the kind of criticism that's so unmoored from any specificity right? that it's hard to kind of push back on it or really understand what it's saying. But smug is sort of implying that we were saying, you know, we're better than everybody else by saying these things, by highlighting these things. uh, And that Somehow we're self-satisfied about that. And if that's what that criticism meant, I, I just reject it. Because in, in our movie, you'll notice that we're not saying that everybody in the movie, the regular people in the movie, you know, ordinary workaday people are stupid or uninformed. We're not saying that. The movie is about a political and media system that manipulates people, about political elites and institutions that are corrupt and not serving the public and not doing what needs to be done. So I reject the idea that this was, that our movie was somehow smugly talking down to the audience. I would say that our movie was on the side of the audience. Yeah. That if you say that this movie is smug, you you must be watching the movie through the eyes of the president or through the eyes of the Mark Rylance billionaire character. The movie, in my view, is designed to be seen through the eyes of Kate DiBiaschi and Randall Mindy. I, I just reject that it's you know smug. Now I've also heard you know the the metaphor of an of a comet headed towards Earth is not a perfect metaphor. And my response to that is, yeah, of course it's not a perfect metaphor. It's 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 a metaphor. <laughs> uh, the the metaphor was used for some specific things. A comet headed towards Earth and having an an impact being in six months is designed to dramatize and speed up the timeline to dramatize what the crisis really is. The metaphor, in other words, is used to focus the mind on some of the problems in our political and media debate as it relates to climate. For instance, the rejection of science. Uh, For instance, the media system that's most interested in distracting us uh, and and not informing us. Uh, So you're right. An asteroid headed towards Earth is not climate change. I concede that point. It is not a perfect analog. But I would argue it is a good metaphor for spotlighting some of the biggest problems 
baked into the climate conversation and really baked into the problem at the heart of American politics, which is a kind of moneyed, corrupt system overlaid with a corrupt media that wants to do anything and everything to distract us from the problems at hand and more specifically is focused on always trying to enrich the already rich with every emergency that comes down the pike. I want to go back to that smug comment, your description of it. I mean, as being a, you know, you're targeting media elites, governmental elites, corporate elites, and that's where sort of the uncomfortableness I think comes in because this is my comparison, but Nathan Robinson, when he, when he wrote about the movie, he drew the comparison to idiocracy, which I think is really illustrative because in some ways it's a similar movie, but in other ways it's completely different because its target is the ordinary person, that we're all much dumber. And, you know, it can, you can charge that movie for being heavy-handed and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But in the Trump era, it's been interesting to see how that movie has gotten a lot of sort of critical reappraisal and, you know, all these, you know, pieces on places like Slate, et cetera, et cetera, about how it's this prescient thing because it's it's revealing all these things about our politics, but it's revealing things about ordinary people or it's it's claiming to. Whereas yours, that's not the target. And I think that's really the the really big dividing line, at least from from, from my point of view. I totally agree. You know, and I love idiocracy, but I, I do think the the critique is is different. Ours is, I think a systemic critique, a critique of the system as a whole and how the system creates bad outcomes for really uh, venal reasons. It's not random that the government in our movie behaves the way it does. It's a logical outgrowth of a completely corrupt uh, system. Uh, and I think that, frankly, I think that if you feel vested in that system, if you're somebody uh, in corporate media, if you're somebody uh, in American politics and the like, my guess is you didn't love this movie um, because this movie is putting a mirror up to you. That's good. Like, I would be worried if you know the political establishment loved our movie. I mean, I really would. I said that at the beginning before it ever came out. You know, if the political elite and the media elite love our movie, it's going to be a reflection of the fact that we didn't hit hard enough. And I think I think we did hit hard enough. And and you know, that that criticism comes with the territory. And some of the criticism was, was you know, ad hominem about me, about, you know, Adam McKay personally. And I told Adam, I was, I said, listen, you know, having worked on presidential campaigns uh, and other campaigns, the nastier the criticism, the more it means we've gotten close to criticizing the movie, criticizing the heart of power. So, the more on target we're going to be, the more nasty the reaction is going to be. Hmm. It's a, a slight tangent, but but I'm curious. You, you do like idiocracy. And not to make this an indictment on idiocracy, but I think it is kind of interesting. I enjoy idiocracy, but you know, it feels like an anti-populist message almost. It feels like a message that that runs sort of counter to your politics, doesn't it? It certainly was counter to my politics, I think. I mean, it's been a while since I watched it, so maybe I'm mischaracterizing. Well, I mean, I haven't watched it in a while, but I, I think it, it depends on what context you think that movie is implying. It does show a lot of kind of ridiculous, clownish, stupid individuals making stupid decisions and being stupid. 
I think what I would say is, is that it depends on what you think produced a society like the one represented in right. Idiocracy. I choose to see most problems in our society as systemic problems with the individuals being the symptoms of the, of the problem, uh, the individuals being an, an expression of the problem. I don't think, for instance, that Donald Trump is the singular problem in American politics. I think Donald Trump is a huge problematic symptom of much deeper problems in American politics. I think liberals in particular comfort themselves by saying, oh, you know, Donald Trump is just this singular anomaly and he's yeah. created all these problems. And and I just, I reject that. I mean, I, I can't stand Donald Trump. I think he's a threat to lots of the things that that I care about. But I also think that he is somebody who seized an opportunity that was created for him, that the opportunity that was created for him was created in the aftermath of the financial crisis by the Democrats not adequately responding to that crisis by helping people. That created an opportunity for a corrupt opportunist like him to seize power. So again, it's a more systemic analysis. So as it relates to idiocracy, it just depends on what you think created, uh, originally created that world uh, that you're seeing on the screen. Mm -hmm. That's a convenient transition because I wanted to ask you about Meltdown, which maybe less people have listened to it than have watched Don't Look Up, but I, I certainly recommend people listen to it. I found it fascinating for a number of reasons. You know, it makes this connection between the politics of Donald Trump, the politics of 2016, and 2008 and the meltdown. And if I have one critique of it, it's not really a critique, but it's that we needed to hear this about, I don't know, at least 2016, at least, you know what I mean? Uh, even before that, if we could, because it felt like we spent so much time hand-wringing about, you know, whether or not everyone is a racist, uh, whether or not this is Russian disinformation, and, you know, you're... you're podcast makes this really great intervention and says, no, look at the, the problem sort of hitting you in the face. But like I said, I wish it came a little bit sooner. So I'm just kind of curious about how it came about and, and, and why you decided to make it when you did. The reason we did it was because it was, we, I think we were doing it in the middle of Trump's reelection campaign. And it still seemed to be a fundamental, there still seemed to be a fundamental misunderstanding of what created Donald Trump, even in that campaign when you when you listen to the democrats talk and the, i mean the key argument in that undergirds the entire podcast is that the financial crisis happened it was a moment of real opportunity for especially with somebody like barack obama a skilled politician who came in with a huge mandate he had raised expectations and that in squandering that opportunity by making deliberate decisions to throw in with his Wall Street donors, he ended up shredding what an already tattered social contract between the public and its government. That more specifically, he, in not delivering, he reiterated to the country, an already disillusioned country, that even when we elect a guy who's promising hope and change, when that person delivers more of the same, it incredibly demoralizes people's belief that the government can do anything. And that's when Donald Trump and the Tea Party, uh, his Tea Party predecessors and the like, they took advantage of that. And there were a lot of decisions that Obama 
and not just him, but his whole administration made, that they didn't have to make, that they did make. And they can argue, I don't necessarily agree with it, but they can argue we had to make these decisions to bail out the banks in the ways that they did without any strings attached and the like. They can make the argument that they had to do it to save the economy. I, I, I reject that. I think there, was, there were other things that could have been done. Uh, but they can make that argument. But even in making that argument, I think it's it's undebatable that that helped lose the country. I mean, there was a line in the in the podcast where it was like, "That's how we." I mean, this was from the Obama folks. That's how we. They were saying that's how we saved the economy and lost the country. Mm-hmm. And and I I personally don't think there had to be an either or choice. Yeah, they they saw everything in in, in kind of technocratic terms, but but always failed to take the kind of political win when it was presented to them. Maybe they just didn't want want to take it. Well, I think it would have required more more um, outside the box thinking and uh, and not just creativity, but I think more courage to take on the the real powers that be. Ultimately, the Obama presidency, I think, ended up pr- basically propping up not just one, but actually two of the key pillars of a dysfunctional economy. It reconstructed and propped back up a really rapacious financial system, financial industry, Wall Street. And then separately, the healthcare reforms propped up health insurance companies uh, and drug companies in ways that made sure that they never had to change or sacrifice much of anything. Uh, uh, In fact, it, it politically fortified their power and I think potentially set back the movement for something like Medicare for All. I think people sometimes forget what Obama's first campaign was like. I mean, the Hopi Changey stuff, which was kind of vague and generic, but there was like a lot of genuinely kind of like populist firebrand rhetoric around bonuses and Wall Street and et cetera, et cetera, that captured people's imagination. And and a lot of people in the podcast talk about being inspired by that. But then also in the podcast, you have an interview with Obama when he was a junior senator from Illinois, and it becomes very clear that he's a politically mild-mannered sort of reformer and technocrat. So I'm wondering if you could talk to me a little bit about that trajectory, if it even is a trajectory, if he was always sort of like that, or at the time, you know, in 20, 2008, did you have any kind of optimism that he had more of a kind of FDR-style politics that, that we might see? Well, I don't believe in politicians in the sense of I don't believe that politicians are singular forces that – I mean they have belief systems, but I don't, I don't really believe their personal belief systems are necessarily the most salient force in relation to what they're going to actually do. I think that uh, – I had hopes for Obama not because um, you know, because he was a good speaker and the like. I had hopes for Obama because I thought that that he saw an opportunity – uh, a political opportunity in delivering real change for people. And I think when you when you look at his career specifically, I mean, he was a guy who was, you know, he ran in a primary for Congress and was kind of a populist candidate because that was a, a path he decided that gave him the best chance to win. He did that in the Senate race also. You know, he was talking about being for uh, single-payer health care in mm-hmm. that campaign. Then once he gets in power and he's the incumbent, he 
is much more moderate, much more respectful of the system and of norms. Then he runs for president as a, a, against a, a kind of de facto incumbent, Hillary Clinton, and he's he's the populist candidate. So in, I guess what I'm saying is, is that he reflected what he saw as his political opportunity. And I had hopes for him only in the sense when he was elected president, I had, I had hopes only in the sense that he would continue to see his opportunity, not regardless of what he, you know, how passionately he believed mm -hmm. it in his own mind, but that he would see his opportunity in delivering on an FDR program, a kind of FDR program that he had been promising on that campaign. So I wasn't naive about it, but I was disappointed in the sense that there really was that opportunity. I think history could have gone in a much different direction. For instance, I don't think the Democrats had to lose Congress since 2010. I think if he had really passed uh, real structural reforms that had helped people's lives, I think I could have been a totally different situation. Mm. Uh, I mean, he presided over the largest losses in of, of Democratic seats uh, up and down the ballot of any president in modern history. I don't think that had to happen. But I think part of that is a reflection of the fact that people didn't feel that things fundamentally changed. A word that comes up in the podcast is disillusionment or disenchantment, maybe both. And I'm curious about how uh, direct we can sort of draw that causal line between hope for Obama to disillusionment to voting for Trump. There are a couple moments when the line is explicit. You know, I think, I can't remember which interviewee says, 202 counties, I think, right. uh, flip from Obama to Trump. One of the, the most surprising moments, I think you profile a campaigner that is exposing sort of mortgage default uh, fraud. And she talks about how people within her movement seeing that level of financial fraud, some of them then go on to thinking about election fraud as a thing. That really stuck out to me. But I'm, I'm just curious, to, in, in a general sense or in a global sense, how direct do you see those two things? You know, I, I, I think it goes back to this idea of the social contract, which is the, the, that people's basic trust in institutions. And I, I'm a trust but verify kind of person. So I get that. As a journalist, that's how I feel. I'm not saying people need to have blind trust in, in the government and, and governmental agencies and the like. But I do think that if institutions that are supposed to be trusted so obviously fall down on the job or even worse, allow and intensify a kind of rampant corruption, which I think you basically saw in the financial crisis, then I think you go from an attitude of trust but verify to nothing can be trusted at all. That really is the meltdown. That's what we talk about when we talk about the meltdown. The meltdown was not the financial crisis. The meltdown was the meltdown of the social contract between the public and the government governing in its name. Donald Trump seized on that to then call into question any institution that got in his way in his efforts to seize power. So questioning elections and the like, you can see it's not a direct line between people losing faith in their government from the financial crisis to people saying, I don't trust election results, but they're related in the sense of, look, the government told me that the financial system is a legitimate system that's not there to just rip me off. The government, for instance, told me that opioids were safe. That was another you know, systemic part of this, of the meltdown of people of the 
shredding of the social contract. Now the government's telling me uh, an election went this way, and I don't trust. I don't trust it. Again, I'm obviously not an election denier. That's not my politics. That's not what I believe. It's, but but you have to be willing to understand the roots of the distrust and understand that when that distrust is created, there are going to be very bad faith opportunists who will come along and try to use that distrust uh, for their own ends. We could say the same things about the media establishment or the scientific establishment, where in both domains we're seeing lots of hand-wringing about crises of trust, not ever really sort of going back to these sort of what causes it. Is there understand, are there understandable reasons for it? There's something that you said on the podcast Champagne Sharks, which I will link to. I recommend people check out that podcast in general and then your episode in particular that really stuck with me. And, and it's you were comparing the period that meltdown is set in, you know, the financial crisis to today. And I'm wondering if you could kind of tell me a little bit more about that. Why on this podcast, you draw some parallels that in fact, we're living in kind of the same time almost, or that there are at least echoes. What did you mean by that? Well, what I meant is that political capital can't be hoarded, as Karl Rove himself said. When you win an election, the way to remain popular and continue to have political capital is to just continue to deliver. And I think coming out of the gate, Joe Biden seemed on board with that idea. I have to deliver right now. The American Rescue Plan delivered a lot of real help to lots of people and broke from the Obama administration model of a kind of top-down bailout. And I think that was really good. And at the, at the time, Chuck Schumer said that he understood the mistakes that were made in the early Obama years. I think since then, though, I think the uh, Biden administration has forgotten those lessons. Uh, it has been focused on trying to appease Republicans. Uh, the president has not used his executive authority to deliver on so many of his promises, and he has that authority on everything from union rights to uh, raising wages to lowering drug prices to canceling student debt, just been completely lethargic as crises have bared down on us. And, and, and that's not even – that's to say nothing about the, about the climate crisis. And I think ultimately – he goes out and he, he makes these big promises that things are going to happen and then they don't happen. And when you make the promises, you get a short-term political benefit. But over the long haul, reality wins. And I think when you look at Biden's poll numbers right now, clearly the public is totally unhappy with his presidency, uh, especially on economic issues. And I think that has to do with the fact that even if the there are good every now and again good macroeconomic numbers, although we've just seen some bad ones about GDP growth, but even when there are good macroeconomic numbers, if you're not solving the problems of, that people are experiencing in their day-to-day -day lives, higher healthcare costs, higher costs for basic necessities, housing costs, food costs, energy costs, if you're not solving those problems, if you're not alleviating those stresses, if you're not materially improving the lives of non-rich people, and you are primarily trying to preserve a status quo that non-rich people don't like, then you're not going to be in power very long. Your donors may be happy for a while, but it's not going to be good for your party. And ultimately, it's going to create opportunities for right-wing strongmen to come in and say they've got the solution. I mean, that Donald Trump comment where he said, I'm the, you know, I'm the only one who can fix it. I'm paraphrasing here. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what 
is the dynamic that's created when Democrats come into power promising change and then delivering more of the same. And I definitely think that's a very big potential for what may happen now with the Biden president. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for, for people that don't know, I, I definitely recommend that, that they check out uh, The Lever. And you have this, this great kind of rundown of many of the things that you just described about Biden's kind of promises that, that were not kept and, and how it's kind of jokerifying all of us. I thought that was very good. I will link that on the show notes. My last question is, it's probably too cute uh, or maybe too unfair for me to ask you, but listening to Meltdown, I couldn't help but thinking what like Meltdown Take Two is going to be like in five years or whatever, you know, like with everything that you just described and just also the fallout of COVID. I don't think, I don't know what the political meltdown of that is going to be like. I mean, people just being essentially left for dead and, and told what they can't have and can't do and, and not really uh, provided for. I can't imagine what the long-term ramifications are going to be like. But I've wondered if you've thought about that, having looked back in the making of Meltdown, thinking about what that could look like in Take Two. Yeah, I mean, I, I certainly think that if the midterms go the way they look like they're going to go, I certainly think there is a meltdown too. I think we're living in the middle of, it's not meltdown part two, it's, it's that the meltdown didn't ever stop. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I wrote that in that piece about the sort of jokerified country, which is that the 2020 election could have been a diversion off of a path that we were on since Trump, but it looks more and more like it's just a rest stop, just a pause. And that's terrifying. I don't like Third Reich or, you know, Nazi metaphors and the like, but I do think that the, the Weimar comparison to Weimar Germany, you know, high inflation, working class upset that it's not, that it feels ignored, sort of a culture war going on. It has echoes of the conditions of the, of the political situation in Weimar Germany, but, but it's not just Weimar Germany. I mean, that, that, Right-wing authoritarianism rises up when left-of-center or quote-unquote centrist parties don't deliver for people. I think that's the dynamic right now. That is the meltdown. I really did think that the Biden folks early on understood this. I mean, the American Rescue Plan really was a deviation from what the government almost now in the modern era almost ever, always does in a crisis. And usually in a crisis, the government gives a lot of money to a bunch of rich people, and that's the quote-unquote solution. For the first time in my life, that's not what happened with the American Rescue Plan. And I thought that that signaled that somebody at the top of the Democratic Party understood that there had to be a change. But now I think that was sort of a, it sure looks like a kind of one-time anomaly. And that's where Meltdown 2 would pick up. That was David Sirota, journalist and editor-in-chief of The Lever. He also wrote the story for the Netflix movie, Don't Look Up. And he hosted the Audible original podcast series, Meltdown. You can find that and other stuff we talked about on this podcast all on our show page. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. Our lead producer is Jake Coburn. Our managing producer is Mark Apollonio. Our marketing assistant is Ian Souden. 
As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber. Graphic designs are by Dakota Coop, and I'm your host and editor, Gordon Caddick. This is a production of Cited Media, and we are backed by our generous patrons. Join us and join them by going to patreon.com forward slash darts and letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in in two weeks. <laughs>